menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Okay, Cass, I have something to admit. And I think like a lot of women who moved to New York City, when I first moved here, I had a little bit of a, you know, when you made it fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Part of this involved having a washer and dryer in your apartment. Right, That's right. <laughs> step one, which is a whole thing in New York. And step two actually was to be stopped and photographed by today's guests. And I'm talking about 2007 here. And in 2007, there was absolutely nothing hotter than the Sartorialist. Oh, yes. And considered one of the most powerful men in fashion who is not a industry executive, Scott Schumann is a world-renowned fashion blogger and contemporary street style photographer. His blog, The Sartorialist, blazed new territory in 2005 when he began posting photographs of the chic, the soigné, and the ultra-fashionable people he met on the streets. And today, in the age of Instagram, this of course may be a given to us, but actually it was Scott's body of work which set the stage for the influencer culture which was yet to come. And I am... Absolutely delighted and maybe just a little bit giddy that Scott is joining us today. Let's just say I might have a professional crush on the sartorialist. Entirely professional. We're keeping this professional. What I mean by that is is like who doesn't want to travel the world and interact (laughs) with all these incredibly amazing people who love to communicate by way of style. You know, sign me up. 
I'm all in. <laughs> so I think we are both all in and are both so excited to welcome Scott to the show today. Welcome, Scott. We are so very excited to have you here with us today. And I would just like to point out that this Zoom conversation is 100% Hoosier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners out there, particularly our international listeners, are totally unfamiliar with this term, but basically it's what people from the state of Indiana call themselves. Um, and I really consider Kansas City more of my hometown, but I was, of course, born in Indiana in Lafayette, and I grew up there until I was about eight. So, so two Hoosiers in the Big Apple, that's us today. <laughs> Just trying to make it in this crazy big apple. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there are more than a few really well-known fashion designers that are from Indiana. Norman Norell, who we've talked about on the show, Bill Blass, and also both Halston and Stephen Sprouse grew up at like really formative periods um, of their childhood in Indiana as well. So what about you? And one other person um, who's become very well-known and is contemporary is a woman named Angela Arts. Oh, awesome. Arts? I don't know her, but I'm going to look her up after this. Yeah, she gave me my first job when I moved to New York from Indiana. Actually, I worked at Bloomingdale's for a couple, for like three months, but she gave me my first real job for a designer named Carmelo Pomodoro, who she was the president of his company. And she was from Greenfield, Indiana, which is a slightly more rural parts of Indiana. I was like just slightly more in, um, closer to the city in Indianapolis than where she was from. But I guess our parents golfed together. And so she gave me a chance. And she, though, went on to head uh, Henry Bendel when it was open. But her big job, well, her second to biggest job was at Burberry. She really turned Burberry around. Um, ah. Bailey. So she was the head of Burberry. And then from there, she went to Apple, where she was the head of all retail. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she is a major, major player. So she's right up there in the ranks of important fashion people from the state of Indiana. Yay. Well, I love that. That's awesome. Probably plays into something a little bit later that we're going to talk about um, for a project for Burberry that you did in 2009. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly, I don't think so, but I know what you mean, yes. Yeah. So, obviously, you came to New York, as you just mentioned, and immediately started working in fashion. What was your kind of, like, educational path up until that point? How did you come to fashion in New York? Well, I, I always say, like every typical Midwestern straight boy, I grew up loving fashion and football. <laughs> um, I don't know how those two collide. Well, I actually, I do know how those collide. I you know, grew up playing football and sports and all of that, and all the athletes would talk about, you know, what fashion magazine they were reading and what kind of uh, uh, music turntables they had and all of that. And I found that a lot of that, they kept talking about this magazine called GQ. And as I got older and all the guys that I grew up playing football and baseball, as they all continued to get much bigger, I decided my life would be easier if I went and worked at the mall than trying to beat them up on the football field. And uh, somehow, you know, that also coincided with girls and everything else. And so I think probably in eighth grade is when I bought my first GQ magazine. And, um, you know, growing up in, in Indiana or even in, you said Kansas City? Um, I, well, I was born in Lafayette and lived oh. there till I was eight. And then I moved to Kansas City later. Right. Yeah. But same idea, like, you know, that's such, when you look at a magazine like um, GQ or Vogue, it's such an incredibly different world. You just can't even imagine mm -hmm. what that 
places. Like you see, you see guys running around wearing suits and they look like they're enjoying wearing suits. And you see these beautiful women in these exotic locations and all of that. And so my education was just, you know, buying those magazines, buying, you know, getting up the, the courage to go in and buy Vogue, which sounds very easy, but it wasn't at that time, you know, to be a young straight boy to go into Kroger uh, grocery store and to buy Vogue magazine <laughs> or GQ and M and all of these magazines. And I think it actually later really played into how I became a photographer because, you know, the whole world came to me through images. I liked to read the stories a little bit, but not that much. I almost like to make up my own stories more. And I think that really informed the way I shoot. You know, I don't always tag people who they are, where they are. I kind of let like the audience to make up their own stories um, of who these people are. But basically that was my fashion education was that there was so little education that you really had to be super aggressive. It was pre-internet. I know I look much younger, but I'm not that young. I was, uh, grew up most of my high school and college without the internet. Same. And um, yeah, so you had to work a lot harder. You know, you had to go to the library. You had to really become a detective. And that actually made it for me a lot more fun. I was almost like a fashion archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you studied fashion in um, college or uh, apparel merchandising, yes? Well, it was a double major, apparel merchandising and costume construction. Oh, interesting. So, because they didn't really have a fashion major at Indiana University where I went. But there was a very lovely lady there named um, Carla Kunoff. Was a German teacher, and so she taught apparel merchandising and some technical sewing classes. And she could tell I was very into it, you know, much more into it than most of the other people. And so she really kind of took me under my under her wing and um, challenged me. And I learned how to sew. And she knew they since they didn't really have a proper fashion design that the music school offered costume, and she could kind of wrangle some things for me. And so my college was mainly after the first couple of years you know, making a tailored suit one part of the day and a tutu or a costume in the music school another part of the day. And so it was uh, not the college experience I was expecting, but it was pretty fun and pretty different than most of the other college kids. And when you came to New York, you were working in the fashion industry, obviously, but it was more on the sales side of things. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, I think I've always been pretty good at um, understanding what I'm good at. And I could look at my designs at that early stage and say, you know, these are all just Armani knockoffs or Yoji knockoffs and and all of that. And and I didn't um, believe coming from Indiana and not having anyone to compare myself to. I didn't think that I could be a fashion designer because I thought everyone that went to FIT and Parsons must be so much smarter and so much more urbane and just as, you know, more artistic now that I've been in New York for a while, I realized I probably could have done it. Yep. But I just had such high, I loved it so much that I didn't want to try and do something I didn't think I could be great at. But what I knew I could be good at was sales because I worked at the mall for all that time. My dad did a lot of sales training and was a very good salesperson um, and writer. So I went into sales. I figured if I couldn't be a designer, I could at least be in that world. And I knew sales could be something I could do. So yeah, I, I started um, at Bloomingdale's out of Indiana. But then I got into Carmelo Pomodoro. I did sales and, and did that for the first 15 years. Mm-hmm. Carmelo and then GFT, which is kind of like the precursor to the Italian version of LVMH. Mm-hmm. And they had Armani and uh, Fusco and a lot of big labels, Emanuel Ungaro. 
And then Kashiyama, which is kind of like the Japanese version of LBMH. And they had Helmut Lang at that time and Gautier. And after that, I opened my own showroom where I repped young American designers, oh, fun. which was really fun. It was my first, you know, real chance. I think I've always been very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. So I opened that in 1999. And that was my first exposure to really going to a lot of fashion shows, helping a lot of these young designers um, put their shows on. Like in those years, 99, 2000, 2001, I think almost all the people that I, were, I was representing were showing during New York Fashion Week. Mm-hmm. So I was really in that scene very deep during that period. Just as a complete side note to this, once we're in the after times, we have Eleanor Lambert's entire archive. And yeah, you should come look at it sometime because it literally is the history of American fashion from like the 1940s all the way until right up until the time of her death. And it's amazing. It has all the Cody Award stuff in it. It has all the CFDA stuff. It has all of her files that she kept. But, wow. but uh, uh, as in the history of American design is literally told within that. And then we also have all of Ruth Finley's fashion calendars too. Oh, really? So it's so like- Ruth was someone that I had to call up each season and try and figure out where to- help the designers get a spot in the show. And, and like I said, it was, and even though this was 1999, it was all done by phone Mm -hmm. and she was looking at her schedule and she'd say, okay, well, you can have a space there and there's space there. And, you know, well, you've got somebody else showing there, so you can't do that. And so, um, you know, it seems unreal that even as late as that, that this woman was running the fashion calendar and really kind of and everybody accepted that she was the one that was going to set the calendar. And um, yeah, she was a real great New York character. Yes. And there's a brand new documentary out about her that my dear friend Natalie Nudell and Tracy Yoshimura produced. Actually, it just premiered a couple of weeks ago at the NYC Docs Festival. But yeah, check that out if you're oh, yeah, into Ruth. And they've already been on the show too. So our regular listeners will know who Ruth Finley is. Yes, she was a character. So in 2005, you made a big change. You switched things up, you kind of pivoted your career. What was the impetus for doing that? And what did you do? Well, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. Everything was going great with the showroom until 2001. Then 2001 really kind of threw everything into a tailspin. Um, stores weren't paying their bills. New designers weren't opening. And by that time, I had gotten pretty good at looking at a designer and figuring if they had a chance of really making it. And so it got a little less exciting. And um, at that same time, I had my first daughter, was born in 99, but she was really getting very cute. And I had always loved photography growing up, looking at all those fashion magazines. So I started taking pictures of her. And then when the showroom closed a little after 2001, probably in 2002, because things just were so difficult then, We had a nanny for, by then, my second child, our two kids, but she went back to Honduras and kept saying, I'm coming back. She never came back. And I kind of fell into the role of house daddy, (laughs) of being a stay-at-home dad, Yay! which I loved. I, you know, it it was, they say the best of times and the worst of times. I didn't, you know, I was such a type A person, but how can you not love spending that much time with your kids and and helping them grow and explaining the world to them and taking, you know, and I was taking photographs of them out of an act of love, out of an act of wanting to capture this time with them. But uh, when I would get the images back, I'd say, wow, can I make this better? And, you know, I already had a lot of photographers I liked, like Steve McCurry and these guys, Bruce Weber and Pablo Aversi, all these guys. And um, so I really would look at their 
uh, work and look at these little photographs I was taking with a little snap and point, uh, point and snap camera and try and figure out how to make them better. And around 2005, still just being, a, you know, taking photographs on my own for fun, I kind of saw this whole idea of blogs coming up mm-hmm. and how people were putting images with text. And it was almost like sports talk radio that I liked to listen to where, you know, the host had a strong opinion and then people were calling in to agree or disagree. And I thought, well, that's basically what a blog is. And so that was kind of the idea of the sartorialist. I thought I had a fun name that was different. It wasn't, you know, Houston street style, that it had a slightly kind of romantic, uh, obscure name that I felt would make people curious that they would click on that. Clickbait, way before clickbait. (laughs) A lot of people thought it was like satire. They weren't sure what it was. The word sartorial was not so popular at that time. And um, to be honest, it really, I did it as just kind of a goof. I didn't put my name on it in case I was, in case it was a horrible mistake, but it just took off. You know, I think growing up, being interested in both menswear and womenswear, the history of it and contemporary designers and everything else, I think I had a very unique point of view in menswear and womenswear. So I started off doing men's just because I was seeing a lot of guys on the street that I thought looked really chic, but not really captured in the magazines. Mm -hmm. And then quickly after that, I started putting more women in it too, because that's all my work background. I've I've always said that I've I've shot men on instinct and women on experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, it literally just took off from 2005. It just was a runaway train. I couldn't, uh, it was hard to rein in. You have been called the first modern street style photographer. But of course, I'm not, I mean, you know, you love history just like I do. Oh, we have a, a shared love of fashion history. But of course, street style photography has actually existed for quite some time. So from the Seaburger brothers and Jacques-Henri Lactique, they were both snapping kind of these candid shots of, of fashionable women during the late 19th and early 20th century. And then you fast forward um, to a, a little closer to where we are now. You also have people like Jamel Shabazz, who I was really lucky to interview a few years ago, um, and also Anne Arbus in the 1980s um, that were kind of doing the street style thing too. So I'm curious, when you started the sartorialist, did you actually kind of sit down and look at this bigger, broader history? And um, do you have any favorites of these photographers? I didn't really, I didn't discover Amy Arbus until later. Mm-hmm. But um, street style photography is somewhat similar to what I do. But she was shooting for Village Voice back in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, all through the 80s. Um, but I didn't discover her until later. I didn't discover um, Jamal until later. But the influence in, a, in an abstract way for me was someone named August Sander. Do you know August Sander? I don't. He's a German photographer, and um, he wanted to capture Germany, all the different kinds of elements of life in Germany from like 1930 until the war broke out. Mm-hmm. And so he's got bakers and people from the countryside, all these different, just a really incredible cross-section of, of Germany at that time. And... Um, Etro actually did an ad campaign kind of based on his photographs. His mm. photographs had a very specific look. And very, it, it's probably the closest visual influence that I had because the people were standing very still. It's a very shallow background. They're really looking right at the camera. So he was probably the, the most major influence visually. But then, you know, I was also really influenced by 
different kind of photography. I think because I didn't, A, I never considered myself a photographer. I never studied or trained. I taught myself. Um, but since I didn't really take it that seriously and I didn't dream of becoming a photographer the way I would have loved to have been a designer, um, I didn't feel um, trapped by anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel trapped the way I would have been if I was trying to, to be the next Armani or Yoji or something. And so I kind of took little elements from Palo Reversi, um, the romance of Palo Reversi, the kind of athleticism um, and sexiness of a Bruce Weber mixed with the serious kind of almost painterly way that um, August Sander would photograph or even someone like Steve McCurry, who I've become friends with in the last couple of years. I remember sitting at my chair in, in, in the living room in, in Chelsea, where I lived at the time, and looking at his book, and I thought, oh my God, this guy has the most incredible job. He just gets to walk around the world, taking pictures of what he's <laughs> And I thought, ah, the, I would like that to be my job. And, you know, I don't know, do you know Steve McCurry's work? Yes. He's the National Geographic and the, the girl with the green eyes and everything. So even though what he shoots is not uh, fashion, you know, it's just so beautiful the way he captures people in their environment. You know, and again, it's abstract things like that that are the little elements that create an individual person's vision, an artist's vision. So like a lot of street photography in the past, people would kind of take the person, put them up against the wall, and it was just about the outfit and shoot them kind of in that way where... When I started, more like August Sander or like Steve McCurry, I put them out on the sidewalk so you could get a sense of not only what their clothes were, but also the street furniture at that time, the signage, the signage of the buildings, the cars. Um, I wanted to have a little context in the image. So even just something like that is a subtle thing, but it creates um, a major influence because it gives you, it's what made, I think, my photographs look different. And so even also people like... Um, Helen Levitt is a big influence, Brassai, the French photographer, um, Doineau. Um, so I think more than fashion photography, kind of traditional street photography was always my biggest influence, but what I know is fashion. And so I've kind of figured out how to create it to look like street photography, but almost like a costume designer, mm-hmm. pick people that I think their clothes help tell something and add something to the image itself and gives you an idea of who they might be. Mm-hmm. I give up saying, you know, who they are because who they are, you can never know who they are when you're just taking a picture of them in the moment on the streets. Um, and that's why I, I don't really consider it um, photojournalism or something. It's more, I think it's more romantic. It's more artistic than that, you know, because yeah. it's kind of an, an imagination of who this person might be. I mean, you have a very distinctive style as well. And that all, all of that like goes into that development of your style. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you can see, Right here over my shoulder uh-huh. is a Lartigue. That oh, we've yay! The, yeah, I mean, I loved his work. You know, he was never discovered until like the 70s by Avedon. Mm-hmm. So he did all of his work, but he did it kind of um, anonymously. No one ever really saw the work until he, until he was way done with that. And then over in this corner, for the people on radio, I'm showing her out through Zoom. Yeah. Well, I'm not radio and the podcast. <laughs> But that's uh, August Sander. It was one of the first photographs I ever really loved and really informed my eye. And then over my shoulder here, I don't know if you can see, is Malik Sidibe photograph of the two dancers. It's probably his most famous work. But, um, you know, those images really not only inspire me visually, but 
you know, when you know their work and you've really looked at a lot of their images, it really reminds you to just keep going out every day and trying to shoot. And even though it's more difficult right now with the pandemic to go out and shoot every day, when things get a little more back to normal, you know, those are the images that I look at each morning and think, all right, I got to go out and make the bread. <laughs> well, in, in, t- in terms of, you know, you being called the first modern street style photographer, I, I would argue it's that that merger of the images plus the blog aspect, because all of a sudden you have this immediacy of access to these images, um, you know, people on the street, you know, and I would say that that's kind of what turns this, this modern corner. What was your initial concept for the Sartorialist, um, the website, the blog? And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the earliest years. Um, well, I agree. I think one of the things that makes it unique is that people like August Sander, didn't get immediate feedback. He would take the photographs. I'm not even sure because it was his own project if those were also really seen very much during his time. Mm-hmm. Um, really the only one that had more immediate feedback was probably the Cibergier brothers in Paris because it was a commercial enterprise and it was done in magazines, but they, people weren't really getting those images and sharing them the way they do on the internet. You know, So I'm really very happy that I could take those photographs, share them immediately, and then you have a contemporary dialogue between the people seeing those images and that's captured. So actually recently I kind of changed the format of the blog to be a little bit more like a photographer's website, but I made sure to to archive the earliest um, elements of the blog um, because I do think it's a a historical document. You know, you look back at that time and see, you know, how people were feeling about fur. Fur was really a, a big thing whenever I would take a picture of someone in fur. People would get really upset. Other people would really defend them. You know, there was a moment in fashion where Karine Reutfeld kind of popularized this kind of way girls would stand with their kind of pigeon-toed, with their toes kind of in, this kind of broken doll kind of way. And all the girls in New York and in Paris kind of stood in that same way. And the comments would be like, why are they standing with their feet pointed in? That's so weird, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, or even things like flip-flops. You know, I didn't think flip-flops were such a divisive thing, but oh my God, you take a picture of someone in a chair wearing flip-flops in the city, people lose their mind. (laughs) Um, So I do think that's a really great, unique element that the blog and that social media captures right now, whether you like it or not. And, you know, I also made sure that people had to be um, decent. You know, they didn't have to agree with what the person was wearing, but they had to say it in a decent way. Right which is not what the internet is now. I still insist on that in my social media. I have to delete or block a lot of people. But, you know, I think it's still great that you can have this kind of conversation. You can see what people are thinking in this moment. You know, we have no idea when Lartigue's photographs were seen at that time, what those people were thinking. Or, or you know, I guess maybe we could capture Amy Arbus's a little better. But, yeah, I think that was a great element of that. And then the idea behind the blog initially was just almost like I was saying, like sports talk radio was just to put the photographs up there and kind of hear what people were saying. I knew that the blog could be international. So I didn't want to write too much because I didn't want people in Japan and other places to feel that they were missing out on a lot of the important element of the blog. So I didn't write that much, but I wanted a place where people could see different kinds of images, different kinds of style and be inspired. And the, the, the text part of it was just kind of a nice add-on to that. But it was also done in a very selfish way. You know, I didn't really, I wasn't going out trying to show what people, uh, 
I, I wasn't trying to capture anything specific. I wasn't trying to say, oh, look at this person wearing Prada. Oh, that's that new Prada shoe. I really wanted to surprise people. So it was really about that mix of, you know, maybe one day it's going to be an old guy from Chinatown. The next day it's going to be a girl from Berlin. The next day it's going to be, a, you know, someone from Shanghai, wherever. And that's how my books look, I think. They're very kind of all over the world. But um, I really wanted to challenge people. I talk a lot about abstract inspiration and that it doesn't have to be so literal and people don't have to be dressed perfectly. I talk about in the first book, this idea of being visually greedy, that when I take the photographs, you know, it's not about saying whether that person is right or wrong in the way they're dressed. I put the emphasis on me, you know, what can I get out of that? You know, so just like designers, I think designers say this all the time. They're not looking for inspiration for people that are perfect. They're very good at picking one or two things from a look. I like that color combination. I like that silhouette. I like this. And then turning it into something. And that's how I always grew up. And so I'm always a little surprised on social media when people are so much about making someone right or wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, but that was always the initial idea is to give people a place to see things um, inspiration in a different way. And I think it really kind of opens your eyes, you know, when you've got a skateboarder kid in one photograph and the next photograph is a guy who's very tailored. I think it does challenge you to say, oh, well, that guy that's tailored, you would think of as kind of like a boring suit looks just as cool as skateboard guy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that was kind of always the initial um, idea. And in your image selection in the books, I like those juxtapositions that are there very clearly sometimes. Mm -hmm. So when you choose your subjects, do you have very specific things that you look for? Of course, as you said, when you shoot men, it's more intuitive. But I'm, I'm just curious if there's little points that you're looking for. No, I think um, I've found that when you go out and you're looking for something, you're going to miss something that you're not expecting to see. And so... I'm very picky. You know, I am very picky. I maybe only get one or two on a good day, maybe four photographs. But a lot of days it's one photograph or zero. Um, so I'm very picky, but I'm not prejudiced or I'm not um, predetermined on what I'm looking for. I like to be surprised. That's what makes me go out every day and shoot is I like to be surprised by something. So I really have no preconceived idea of what I want. And I think it's one of the reasons the, the photographs especially of, of different kinds of people really resonate uh, with the audience because like I have a lot of photographs of really elegant, you know, striking older women. And it's not because I want to go take photographs of striking older women, but if you see one, you can't not try and take that photograph. So it's the fact that I really don't have any agenda, mm. don't have any point I'm trying to prove. I'm just trying to share what has surprised me. Um, I think that's what makes it more genuine. You know, without having to, I'm not trying to do something, but it just kind of happens organically. That's uh, where I think you feel the sincerity of the photographs. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, you shoot both men and women, um, which is a little bit atypical for other street style photographers. You know, most photographers focus on one or the other. Is there a difference in the way in which you approach shooting men versus women? Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, I, I, I approach, you know, because of my background, I, I, kind of learned how to, what women like to see, what inspires them, you know, through experience, through working in a loving fashion, you know, since I was in eighth grade and working in the business for 15 years in New York. So I find that I really shoot women on experience and, and men from what I like to see or what I 
no is good. You know, very few of the guys that I shoot would I actually wear those clothes, but I can tell, you know, that guy's doing what he does very, very well. But a lot of times it's also a big photographic element in the sense that, you know, some things are just too subtle, you know, someone wearing very subtle Jill Sander, you know, um, unless it's really a great proportion mix or really subtle color, you know, it doesn't give you something really to, to grab on to give the eye to grab on to. So a lot of times you all see something where the person's nicely dressed, but it doesn't give the eye something to grab into, grab onto for the photograph. Mm. So really, I'm not really looking for a particular thing, but I'm really looking what's going to make a great image that someone can look at and say, wow, you know, that photograph was about this. I just was redoing my archives and, and tagging some things. And I find almost every photograph is, should really be about one or two things, you know, and if you get those one or two things, if I'm able to communicate it, it's pretty obvious what that is. Even though that's not the, necessarily the focus of the photograph, you kind of have an idea of what it's about. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. 
It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. So this this is an enormous question that I'm going to ask you next. And I bet more so than a lot of people in this world, you have spent countless hours pondering this. Scott, for you, what is the difference between fashion and style? Or is there a difference between fashion and style? Yeah, I guess I've thought about it a bit, not overthought it. But I think what I've come to realize is that, you know, fashion is about having fun. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about making your body look good. I think fashion is about fitting in with a, a kind of group, you know, like if you're really into fashion, you know, maybe someone that loves football doesn't really understand. It doesn't understand the difference between a Dries kind of person or a Rick Owens kind of person. Maybe that's too specific. But, um, you know, I think fashion is about fitting into the group that you want to be a part of, mm-hmm. where style becomes more personal. You know, it's about me and what my style is. And so I think the natural evolution for a lot of people is they grow up and they kind of wear fashion to fit in with a certain group. And as they get older, they start to become more self-confident of what works for them and who they are. And that fashion starts to evolve into a style. And it's really about them as opposed to, you know, attaching to a certain designer and their point of view, they really find who they are. And that's why I think you find a lot of older people are very stylish They might not be very fashionable, but they're very stylish. And, you know, a lot of times it is younger kids who can be very fashionable because they, you know, they don't know who they are yet. And they might wear a cowboy hat with a football jersey, with a pair of big boots or something, you know, whatever it is. And, And I think both things are really beautiful. You know, that's really kind of a beautiful way of someone trying to express who they are or find who they are. Mm -hmm. I really, in in the most realistic terms, I really think that's the difference between fashion and style is fashion is about you being somebody else, trying to find yourself, and style is when you've found yourself. And all of this involves work, right? <laughs> and you have you have said before that that you think that this notion of effortless chic is actually a myth. Why so? Well, I think people, you know, I think the same people who right on, you know, on, on Instagram, oh, that person's so effortlessly chic, are the same people who want to do those five-minute workouts. You know, they think, oh, you know, I want to work out, but I only want to do it for five minutes. I want to be in perfect shape, but I only want to do it for five minutes. They want to believe that you can be, you know, very fit or very chic without putting effort in. And that's just uh, the most chic people I know. It's not that they overdo it, and it's not that they spend hours getting dressed, but they usually spend um, a lot of time trying to figure out what are the right things to buy. You know, they put, the right, they put the right amount of work in in the beginning. So yeah, maybe when they get dressed because they've 
curated their closet and their wardrobe so well, they can't almost put anything together, but it's because they already know themselves so well. So someone like Jenny, my wife, you know, who I think is very, very stylish, you know, it's not that she spends every day putting together outfits that are really different, but she knows she has color palettes that she likes. She knows, so when she's buying, she knows there's a particular kind of blues that work really well for her or particular shades of green and how to mix those colors. So when she does get dressed, it's somewhat effortless. It's the shopping and the finding and in the very beginning of the process that does take a lot of effort. And, and a lot of people just aren't willing to do it. They aren't willing to buy something and take it to the tailor and make sure it fits well and make sure that it's something that's going to last. You know, they just almost want this idea of like, oh, I can just throw this on and look beautiful. That just doesn't happen. Very rarely. And maybe if you're, you know, a super top high-end model or something like that, and you look good in anything, that works. But for most people, that's, that doesn't work. Tailoring is key, 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 key. Every single pair of pants I own have to be tailored. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I alter almost everything, even some of my boxer shorts. <laughs> That's fabulous. I don't like them they get too long. So <laughs> I do feel kind of odd going to the tailor with my boxer shorts saying, can you bring those up like an inch right there? But, you know, it, it makes me feel comfortable in my clothes. And it makes me feel like they're my clothes now. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they've been fit for me, which the only downside of that now is this whole resale culture, um, which is great. I think it's great. You know, these, it's the Grailed and the Real Real and Bestia, all these different kind of resale sites. I think it's a great thing to bring more uh, use and life out of the clothes. But I always feel so bad if I send something in. I don't do a lot of it because, you know, by the time I have the sleeves shortened, and the length of a shirt shortened everything else, they could make a little hat out of the extra fabric. Or I feel like making sure that when they post it, they, they put down, well, this sleeve, you know, from the original has been shortened, you know, two inches or whatever. But I, I still think it's more important to have the clothes that, that fit you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to ask a very gauche question really quickly um, about money. Um, so when, in the earliest years of the blog, were you monetizing the site? And, and this kind of parlays like into a bigger question that I want to ask, which is that outside of the blog during the 2000s, you were also doing quite a bit of work in advertising and also editorial work. So, so how does this all fit together in, in the Sartorialist brand? And do you have any favorite partnerships or collaborations that you worked on or have worked on? Yeah, well, in the beginning, um, you know, because I had a business background and I had two young children that I had to, you know, make sure that uh, they had everything they needed. Uh, I really worked hard for that. But at the same time, I, I knew that I couldn't make it too commercial. I couldn't lose what I had. And so at that time at blogs, you made money from having uh, displayed advertising on the, on the blog or on the website. And it was about clicks. So I had so much pressure in the two, you know, because you got paid by how many clicks. And so you wanted to put good content, but if you were just putting a lot of content to get a lot of clicks, you, I knew I would lose it. So I had to be really out there a lot, a lot, a lot, just trying to find good images and being very picky um, and not putting things up just because I thought, oh, maybe this will get some clicks, which is kind of what happens now with a lot of websites. 
so I had like American Apparel signed on early and a lot of other um, people. I was doing the sales myself. And then at some point, style.com, which became vogue.com, they agreed. I was the only person outside of their family they did sales for. And then when they kind of started to close that down, they gave it back to me. And um, so it was a mix of like advertising on the site. And then also because the sartorialist was very hot, a lot of brands wanted me to shoot campaigns for them. So like DKNY, I remember that was my, that was only the, the second organized photo shoot I had ever done. The first thing was for LUK. And that was really cool, but like I was not used to shooting with other people around because I was always by myself. So they would get the models ready and I would say, okay, everybody stand over here. I'm going to go around the corner with the model and shoot just me and her because I don't want all of you throwing off my vibe. And so it was like that for DKNY, but a hundred times bigger. It was just such a big, crazy production. And then, you know, like I shot some stuff for Paris Vogue, for um, Italian Vogue. I was very good friends with Franco Sozzani. And, um, but after a while, I realized, um, especially with the editorial, that as much as I love magazines, and as much as I love those magazines, that editorial was not the way I loved to shoot fashion, especially when you, know, you knew you had to shoot a, um, a dress because this person was an advertiser or whatever. And, you know, I think it was maybe when I was shooting something for Italian Vogue, which is the magazine I taught myself photography on and that I loved, I, you know, had in storage all the issues back to 1994 forever. I was like, why am I not enjoying this? And I think it's, A, you don't get the immediate feedback. You shoot it and it goes out in the magazine three months later. You don't hear much about it. But um, I also just didn't like the pressure, you know, of trying to shoot something to make somebody else happy, like a boss Mm -hmm. happy where I knew what it would take to shoot to make my audience happy, to make me happy. So after a while, I just decided to do less of that. And by that time, things kind of switched from blog more into Instagram. Mm -hmm. And because Instagram is more about doing collaborations with brands, it was less about clicks. Really, it's not about clicks at all. Um, I found I could shoot less. I could be even more and more picky. you know, now I never feel the need to post, you know, I never really lose anyone when I don't post. And depending on the photograph or what you say, sometimes you gain a lot of people, sometimes you lose a lot of people. But, um, you know, that's one, one of the good things about Instagram is that you can be very, very picky. And a lot of people, I don't know why, they post so much, so, so much. And it just feels like they're always in your life. It creates noise, kind of, visual noise. Yeah, they're just posting to post and like, oh, so many stories and all of this where, you know, like during the lockdown, I was not happy. I We were not in a good mood. This was not fun. And I think maybe I'd go three weeks without posting something, you know, maybe we'd do some stories or something. But I do think Instagram, it's one of the strong things with Instagram is that I feel anyway, I post when I have something I really want to share. Mm-hmm. Um, just a second ago, you mentioned um, um, partnering with brands, and I want to ask you about one specific project because this just sounds like you had a ton of fun working on this. And this is what I referenced earlier back to Burberry in 2009. Will you tell us about this project that you did for the trench coats? Yeah, that was pretty cool. It was the first kind of social media ad campaign that a big brand had ever done with someone like me, with someone from, from the internet. 
And surprisingly, I don't think Angela Arns, even though she was there, I don't think she was very involved. I didn't deal with her that much. You know, I'd see her at shows and stuff. And, but I don't even know if she was super that involved at the beginning of it. And to be honest, you know, I, one of the things I'm very proud of is with most of these projects, whether it was Burberry or other ones that have come along the way, Gant and uh, a lot of these, they would just send me the clothes because I was, they trusted my fashion point of view. They trusted my casting. So like Burberry was the first example of that. They just sent me, I would tell them, I'm going to be in Venice. Just send me a bunch of trench coats in Venice and I'll shoot it and I'll send it back to you. And they said, okay. And so I was going to, I was, I was supposed to do a hundred or I did a hundred images and it was literally just saying, I'm going to be in Berlin. I'm going to be wherever I was going at that time. I would just tell them ahead of time, they would ship a bunch of trench coats there. And then I would just cast it for people that I saw as I was in the town, in the city, whatever. And, um, you know, I cast it, I styled it, the whole thing by myself, which compared to most of their campaigns, you know, which at that time were Mario Testino or Craig McDean and these huge productions, you know, millions of dollars and stylists and hair and makeup. The fact that it was just me doing everything with just the subject was pretty cool. Even my daughter, I, even my, um, my older daughter, Isabel, I shot um, her in a trench coat when we were on family vacation mm-hmm. in Montauk. But it was really fun, but also very challenging, you know, because it was so early in the process and it was a lot of pressure and um, to try and find people and to find people that I thought were right. Because Burberry had some people that they really wanted me to shoot that you know, were maybe more known in the UK at the time, and I didn't really want to shoot them. So I think that was the only tricky point is really having to say, I find nothing charming about that person. (laughs) But other than that, yeah, I mean, it was really fun. It was just, it took like three or four months. And so I was very ready to have that done by the time that project wrapped up. I did another one with Luxottica one time um, that was supposed to be like a six-month project and it turned into a two-year project because it went so well. And uh, that was called Faces by the Sartorialist. And I do portraits of people wearing optical glasses. And it was literally for two years, you happen to find two people every week to take a portrait of. But at the same time, it was kind of fun. And, you know, it definitely kept um, the money coming in to pay for all the other things, you know, going to India, doing a book on India, doing these other things. So, you know, the commercial side is... um, like anything in fashion, you know, it's, it's the thing that pays the bills and hopefully you do it in a way that's beautiful and, and still keeps your standards. But what I found is, you know, most of that stuff people are going to forget in a month or six months. It's the work you put in books. It's the work that you keep on the website and the, the work that you promote. That is what the legacy will be. The legacy is what you will make the legacy be. And um, so like, I'm proud of that Burberry stuff, but the most of the, most of the other, Uh, collaboration stuff the most fun things have been like these trips we've gone on with different car brands or you know Italian brands that we go on a boat ride and they just say just try and capture something Scott thank you so much for joining us and do not fret dress listeners this is just part one of our interview with Scott part two of April and Scott's conversation is actually coming on Thursday this is a two-parter episode so much more to come yes 
there is so much more to come. And we we had such an amazing chat that one episode was just simply not enough. So stay tuned for the rest of our conversation. And until then, we will sign off. Um, but also, please check out our Instagram for images of Scott's work at dress underscore podcast. You can also head over to his Instagram, which is at the sartorialist, or his website, which is thesartorialist.com, to find oh so many more images. And Cass, on a personal note, at the top of the episode, I mentioned my fantasy of like when I made it. Well, I happened to notice that on the Sartorialist's current webpage on, on his .com site, three rows down, right in the center, is a photo of a really lovely woman in a black jumpsuit. It happens to be that I own the exact same jumpsuit from a local designer, so... What does this mean? I don't know. Maybe a girl likes to think that a tiny, tiny bit of her dream came true. (laughs) And on that note, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the influence of street style next time you are pondering getting dressed. Thursday's episode, as we mentioned, is part two of our conversation with the sartorialists. And of course, we love hearing from you. Also, if you'd like to reach out to us to suggest a topic for a future episode, you can do so by DMing us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast or emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.